0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Joel Kotkin. Professor Joel Kotkin is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange, California, and is the Executive Director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Initiative Institute. I'm sorry. Joel has been described by the New York Times as America's uber-geographer. His research and writing looks closely at economic demographic, political and social trends in order to offer insights into the future nature and shape of society. He's the author of quite a few books, including The New Geography and The New Class Conflict. But his latest book really has, uh, I think, hit on something that's very important for us to understand. It's called The Coming of of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. And it suggests an approaching return to fixed economic and ideological hierarchies, not to mention a decline in the appeal of liberal capitalism around the West. So, Joel, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Before we unpack uh, the the coming of neo-feudalism, can I just ask you, how does geography shape societies and and, uh, the lives of the people in them? This is something that we don't talk about much now because so few people study history. If they do, it's likely to be some revisionist history pushing an ideology.
1: Well, I mean, as somebody who teaches, I can tell you that kids do not come out of school with remotely the historical understanding they had 10 years ago, much less 30 or 40 years ago. But basically, geography is very important. What makes for liberal societies... um, is the ability of people to move from one part of a country to another, or in the case, for instance, of the UK, to export a huge part of their population to the rest of the world? Um, the countries that have been the best for the middle class historically have been countries with large land masses, uh, where their people are able to get housing at a relatively uh, decent rate. Australia, Canada, United States—probably the three most attractive countries in the world right now um, and so that's been our heritage now the weird thing is and particularly weird in Australia given the fact that I think you've got a little bit of land um, <laughs> is that your Australian government and uh, in some cases and and certainly your planners want to pack everybody into ever more crowded spaces in a country that has lots of land and basically making it virtually impossible for middle class People, particularly the younger generation, to ever buy a house. So, you know, I was always struck in Australia by it was probably the most democratic country I'd ever been to. I remember going to Perth once, and the guy picking me up at the airport uh, in a um, in 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 you know in the car from the airport, and he um, and I said, "Oh, where do you live?" And he points up to a hill and says, "I've owned two houses up on that hill." Today, that same driver. I would have virtually no chance of owning a house and would be probably living in a little apartment, making the planners happy, making uh, the financial markets happy and making himself unhappy.
0: (laughs) You're right. Uh, and, And we'll go on to talk about this because part of the response to the economic chaos that came out of the great financial crisis and now COVID is exacerbating these problems. Those who have assets are doing very well low and middle income earners are looking at flatlining wages and you raise some very interesting questions about who's benefiting and what it might all result in you're absolutely right about australia it's 17% increase in housing prices during essentially a covid dominated era uh, and, uh, and 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 to highlight the accuracy of what you've said that the problem's so much worse in sydney melbourne perth whatever if you get out into the regions in Australia, you can buy a good house for a mere fraction of what you pay in the major cities. But there's still this desire to, to congregate. So, uh, And in fact, uh, just on the, uh, the geography shaping things, our uh, most famous historian who's still alive and doing a lot of writing, Geoffrey Blaney, well into his 90s now, uh, was launched to fame in this country by writing a book called Tyranny of Distance. And he describes how the nation was, in fact, shaped by its isolation. So it's something we ought to keep in mind. But I'm I'm particularly intrigued this morning as we talk, your contention that we are in danger of returning to a new feudal system. Probably useful to outline for people who don't really have much of a focus on feudal times, what a feudal system was and then to perhaps take us through your thinking about why we may be seeing and the emergence of a new feudalism which ought to be deeply concerning to us
1: well first of all the feudalism you know obviously we know it's not the same you know it's not people going to go around with chain mail and and hack at each other with swords that that we're not going back to that um but what we are seeing is what I would consider the freezing of class lines. In other words, a less and less upward mobility throughout the whole West and now beginning to affect China as well, where you're pretty much, if you come from a certain class, your chances of staying there are better. The, uh, the, the old sort of, you know, sort of up from the bottom uh, process has become, which really uh, was characteristic of much of the 20th century is now much much more difficult, um, and I also think that what you what you have is uh, one thing is obviously that you have a uh, two powerful classes um, very much like the old French first and second estates the aristocracy which is now the tech and the Wall Street people, um, and what I call the clergy which is used to be what we would call the clergy but is now Sort of our secular clergy, um, the universities, the media, the upper bureaucracy, who can tell us to do whatever we want to do. And in COVID, both of these classes got richer. The online, the people who control the online platforms, obviously Jeff Bezos, have made a phenomenal amount of money in, in the pandemic. Uh, the clergy has become all powerful, able to determine what's true, what's not, um, put limitations on, 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 on almost everything, sometimes with scientific ju- uh, justification, sometimes without, but with an enormous exercise of power. Who is declined? What I call the yeomanry, which would be the old third estate, the small property owners, um, the, the artisans, that class. And then below them are what I would call the new serfs, which is very often people who were ye- from the yeoman class, but now have no chance of ever owning a home or starting a business and are going to be living basically um, hand to mouth um, for the rest of their lives. I mean, the, in certain places, and I think Sydney and Melbourne would be good examples, certainly um, here in Southern California, in the Bay Area, in the New York uh, City area, the chances of an average earning middle class family buying a house is, is very, very small.
0: Yeah, you, you draw out some very interesting parallels. You say that this sort of this new um, uh, sort of technical class of very, very wealthy people who, who do well in, a, in in this new emerging feudalism, as you put it, has a parallel in China where it's all right to become incredibly wealthy in a in a communist state where everybody's meant to be equal, provided you tow the government line and that there are indeed yeah. shades of of Mussolini's Italy. Uh, you've got the situation where, you know, traditionally in your country and in ours, the captains of industry tended to be economically conservative. They were respecters of democ- of democracy. Uh, they had a deep identification with their with their country, but you now see, as David Goodhart might call it, uh, the emergence of the somewheres and the anywheres. The anywheres are sophisticated people who have no particular allegiance uh, or patriotism about them in relation to the country that they live in. Uh, and, and you're seeing this sort of strange merging almost of this pattern in both America and China, as I understand what you're saying.
1: Well, well I think that what's happened in China is that, um, is, you know, in many ways, I think you know what's happened in China, I like to say America is evolving towards uh, Chinese capitalism with American characteristics, sort of turning around Deng Xiaoping's old phrase. You know, basically, yes, you can make a lot of money, but you've got to kowtow to the party line. So Jeff Bezos gives money to Black Lives Matter, which is a group that, you know, would probably wouldn't mind, you know, seeing him expropriated, if not guillotined. Um, you, you have uh, people genuflecting to ideologies that would that are completely opposite to the ideologies that allowed them to accumulate wealth in the first place. Yep. Yep. And, and part of what is also very much in the medieval f- uh, fold is the rise of orthodoxies. In other words, you can't challenge the orthodoxy. Um, you now have Facebook and Google, um, for instance, limiting and sometimes eliminating points of view uh, that are just dissenters, whether they're um like, for instance, Steve Koonin, who just wrote a very good book on climate change, a former um, chief scientist in the Energy Department under President Obama. Um, you know, he comes out with a book which says, well, you know, there's been a lot of exaggeration and maybe there are more pragmatic ways of doing it. Not a crazy deniers book. It's called misinformation uh, when, when you, you try to access it. Or on the most embarrassing things like the um whole question of where did covid come from i don't know i you know i but i but but the fact that there were credible people who thought that maybe covid was was created in a lab were essentially silenced until the cdc said well oh, well maybe it was true but in other words this this idea that like sort of like you have to go through the bishop's office to get approval for your views, and by the way, when the, when the bishop has a different point of view, that becomes the new law. But meanwhile, anyone who dissents is kicked off, um, basically, you know, kicked off into what I like to call the the uh, digital gulag. I mean, they still exist; they're still breathing, but they have a very hard time reaching anyone.
0: Yeah, I was recently in conversation with Yonmi Park, which the South Korean lady who escaped a North Korean lady who escaped North Korea. She very vividly describes what a society looks like when all differing views are silenced. You rapidly fall into a great darkness because your ideas are not challenged, and the ruling orthodoxy can't be broken. And the results are dreadful in every sense, including economic. Uh, but let's tease out a little bit: what does the new clerisy believe? because this is what you 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 know you you're really touching on when you say that um uh they establish orthodoxies until a new orthodoxy comes along which by the way sort of takes you right back to you know the early days of western freedom when we used to burn people who dissented at the stake until we realized that was dumb because sooner or later today's minority would become tomorrow's majority and the whole thing would turn. You get a very unstable situation. But what is it at the moment that the clerisy, the new clerisy, as you call them, believe? How would you summarise that?
1: First of all, they believe in themselves and they are very attached to credentials. Um, you know, I, I thought that one of the great comments of, about this is, you know, the, this the... the what, 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 you know, let's say journalism, because I'm particularly sensitive there um, that, you know, you go through the journalism schools, they don't teach people to be objective anymore. They don't teach them, hey, you need to inform the public, which is how I was brought up as a journalist. Now you need to instruct the public. And then you have this belief by, let's say some of the health authorities. Well, we can lie and and, chant and do things because it's good for people that I lie, like I'll change what herd immunity is. I'm gonna change whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask, and then change that point of view with this idea that your authority is so great that nobody can, can challenge it. And what we have now is a uh, alliance between this clerisy, which is overwhelmingly made up of people who have a particular ideology, and the tech oligarchs, and now, the corporate world. The scariest thing in the essay I, I did recently for Claremont. Um, the, the the scariest thing is now you have major corporations doing the same things. We're going to discriminate against white people. We're going to we're going to make sure that uh, our employees go through some sort of you know indoctrination. Um, United Airlines gets up. Fifty percent of our pilots are going to be women or minorities. I said, well, that's great, but you know what? I'm on an airplane a lot and I really just want a really good pilot <laughs> you know I mean their skin color and their gender is irrelevant what I care about is that they're a good pilot so we're stripping away the merit and what's ironic about it is many of the victims of this I'm sure this is going to be true in Australia as well um is you have an asian population for instance which generally overachieves relative to the other ethnic groups overall um and now we Right, and then you'll you'll say, well, you know what? We don't want, um, you know, the Bronx, uh, uh, the the Bronx uh, uh, um, um, High School of Science, or the or Stuyvesant in New York City, or Lowell in 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 uh, in San Francisco, to be based on merit. These super academic high schools, we're going to do it by lottery. We're going to get rid of any sort of testing. Um, I mean, I can see this in my my daughter goes to a a charter school here in Orange County, my younger daughter, which is a great school, very hard to get into. They're going to go to a lottery system. And she says to me, you know, Dad, in five years that this degree isn't going to be worth what it was. I know that what's going to happen to the how good is a Berkeley degree going to be when SATs are no longer used, where the the number one way of getting in is basically being in the right ethnic group. You're going to degrade the quality of of things and you're going to make it very difficult, particularly for those people like working class, let's say Asian uh, families who have worked really hard. So their kids go to good schools and then they move up, just like my grandparents coming from Russia um, uh, were able to um, get at least some of their kids into the professions and into into city college where from where they they, they did well. Well, they worked really hard in school. All the habits, the, what you might call the bourgeois culture, which, by the way, the Black Lives Matter people say it's white culture. It's not white co- culture. You know, the, the most bourgeois people I know in terms of behavior are, are immigrants from Africa. Um, in Houston, uh, the, the Nigerians, by some measurements, are the best educated, wealthiest population in the city. Um, and so... You know it's not but what we've done is we've taken all the elements of middle class value systems and decided that they're 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 racist and discriminatory and they're the exact opposite look I come from a family where my father was the first one to go to college um, uh, you know my you know in, in for my wife you know she was the first one in her immediate family to go to college I mean from Canada um, all these people who have made this transition, which is the uh, really emblematic of the liberal capitalist era, that whole process is now being uh, negated and turned into something which is very similar to what you saw in China in the 60s or in um, the former Soviet Union. Except I have to say, in China, they do believe that math is math and engineering is engineering, and two plus two equals four, whether you whatever your race happens to be. And one funny thing is I, the, the craziest thing is my uh, president of my university is a um, Italian mathematician. And he says, they accused me at, at, at math of being racist. And he said, you, don't they know that this math comes from the Arabs, <laughs> you know? I mean, he said, Roman numerals never, n- you could never do calculus with Roman numerals, but, but we've now taken all the great achievements of our society. And you think about it, why does somebody migrate from China or India to Australia? It's for those very opportunities and freedoms that Australia offers that they can't have at home. And yet we want to rescind those freedoms so that that a small ideological group and and a group of oligarchs can completely dominate society.
0: Let's tease that out a bit because this is where what you say strikes such a chord with me. This, it is a new aristocracy. Meritocracy is dying. I find it that that's amazing that it's happened in America where your great, you know, cat's cry has always been freedom. In Australia, it's always been fairness, I think you'd say. Uh, Kim yes. Beasley, a former distinguished leader of the other side of politics to me, um, uh, you know, often says this, and I think he's right, fairness, you know, Jack's as good as his mate as in a saying that I grew up with, you don't hear it as much now. But now what you actually have that's so frighteningly reminiscent of what we'd once broken free of is a class of people who just naturally assume that they know what is best for us and they right. actually don't really believe in, um, in, in democracy. They actually don't really believe in it. They know better.
1: Well, and, and where we're going to see this take place is going to be in the climate issue. What- where you know, they're basically going to say, you know, you're going to have to do what we want. And we know you're not going to like it. So we're going to do everything by administrative diktat. This is what uh, this is the new pattern. Whereas, you know, no, you know, legislatures are not going to be able to say to people, you know what, we're going to restrict um, how much energy you can use. We're going to, we're going to raise the price of, of, of gasoline, petrol by a huge amount. But it's not going to be passed by the legislators. It's going to be done by by executive order. We saw this beginning to develop um, particularly under president obama and and now um, uh, and then Trump basically rescinded them and now Biden restored them. but in in each case, the legislators never got to talk about it and I want to make one last point just in, uh, uh, on this, which is I'm not a conservative. I've never been a conservative. I've never voted for a Republican for president. Um, I, you know, I consider myself somewhat of a social Democrat, but today's progressives are the exact opposite of social Democrats. Social Democrats want middle-class people and working-class people to move up, maybe own property, maybe uh, have a better life for their kids. Today's progressives essentially want everybody to live in in, in a studio apartment, um, play video games all all day, smoke pot, drink, and uh, and uh, water their plants, um, and watch porno. I mean, that's sort of the vision that they have. Their vision isn't you, this young person's going to achieve what their parents achieved, because under their rubric, you can't address co- climate change except on the backs of the middle and working class. At the same time, that these people live an extremely live extremely and, and violate their own rules, um, which, of course, you know, you w- might see this in the bishops in, mid- in medieval Europe.
0: So this is a very interesting thing that um, there's, there's a parallel in my country and I'd say in Britain too, um, and that is that um, the traditional Labor parties uh, or, or sort of left of centre parties, uh, um, social democrat parties here, uh, were very committed to the working party, to working people and to those who were disadvantaged or dispossessed. But what has actually changed is not just that they, in the name of identity politics they're creating new aristocracies out of victims, real or perceived. There's something else going on. They actually think working men and women are the enemy of the environment. They actually despise them, a lot of them. And 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 there's working people are and I think actually beginning to wake up to this. So you're seeing a massive political realignment. So you, in a lot of cases. Uh, and I think there are probably parallels right across the Western world, you've got people in the so-called leafy suburbs, very well-to-do, who are increasingly now disinterested in in social cohesion and even in patriotism. They're more committed to environmental and social causes, uh, and so they're tending to vote now for, ironically, left-wing green-type parties, Uh, and it's a sort of workers and middle class that are attracted to the sort of centre-right parties. You're seeing quite a dynamic okay. shift here. And you talk about that too, the possibility for a real realignment uh, in coming wow. times where yeah. the old left and right definitions and, and breakups mean nothing.
1: No, I think that's very accurate. I mean, there's a very good book out recently called Despised out of the UK, which talks about, you know, the attitudes of, of sort of the... Um, well, a friend of mine calls them the cognitive elite um, and their attitudes towards the working class. And the, the 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 great problem is, can we find a champion of working class, if you will, somewhat nationalist perspective who doesn't indulge in white nationalism and 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 racism? That I mean, it, even Donald Trump, who is an awful human being, um, in the last election, picked up votes among Jews, among uh, among Hispanics, and among even among African Americans and Asians. I think a candidate who could speak some of the same things that Trump talked about, some of which were very legitimate, uh, but without the rancor, without the the you know the 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 the, the sort of um, dog whistles to the to the white nationalists. Um, I mean, I just think he had, he had, you know, he had diarrhea of the mouth. He didn't know when to shut up. He didn't know, he, he, he didn't realize that, that, you know, he wasn't sitting in a bar in Queens talking to his friends. Um, and, and I think that basically um, this is sort of the, 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 the happening everywhere. The, the Labour Party in Britain lost seats in the Midlands and in Yorkshire that have never voted for a conservative. I understand in your last election that everyone expected the Labor Party to win and the more Conservative Party won because working class and middle class voters deserted them. This is beginning to happen in this country as well. The question is, you know, once Trump is out of the way, um, you know, whether or not there'll be somebody who's got more appeal to minority groups. Um, But we're starting to see it. You know, you look at Texas. Recent elections in Texas, a uh, border town, McAllen, overwhelmingly Democratic, overwhelmingly Hispanic, just elected a Republican mayor. You know why? Because they, they want the border control. Because if you live on the border and then all of a sudden you've got people who are coming into the country illegally, including some criminal elements, but, you know, even or, or people who might have COVID, you know, Australia has, has the advantage of being an island basic, a big, 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 big island, but you can cut it off. We have a, we have a huge borders on with both Canada and Mexico. And, and um, so, I mean, I think there are a series of issues that are coming up that will continue to, to separate working and middle-class families from, uh, from the progressives. Um, The, the progressives seem, seem to be as a friend of mine said, "The Alliance of the overeducated and the undereducated. Um, and basically what they do is they say, "Hey, you know what? we're going to give you free money so you can you don't have to work or you can only work part time. Um, and you know, and that's how we'll buy you off. And we see this in in states like California where uh, a lot of the middle class jobs have disappeared, the industrial jobs have disappeared. So the traditional way of working people moving up has been cut off. And so the the progressive response is essentially uh, transfer payments. And those transfer payments, you know who pays for that? That's the middle class. I don't think Zuckerberg and Bezos and those people are paying the taxes that go um, to transfer payments. I think it's poor schmucks like us.
0: It's interesting, uh, out one thing you said there, the unexpected election result in Australia, there's there's something behind that that's really important. A lot of people now don't feel they can safely tell a pollster what they really think. Yes. We are silencing people. One would have thought there'd be a little more graciousness and a little more intelligence uh, uh, on the part of modern elites in the face of this. There ought to be a willingness to recognise that by the constant intimidation, the constant attempt to silence and to belittle those who have a different view, you drive them underground in terms of their views. Now, the ultimate expression of what can happen there is that people say it's all a swamp and so they do something wild and radical as they did in the election of Trump. I've always seen him more as the product rather than the cause uh, of, of the dislocation and the disruption.
1: Now, and I think that the more, for instance, we push, let's say the the uh, critical race theory approach, what it's going to do is it's going to create a generation of white nationalists. I mean, think about it this way. You're a young person, growing up, you're being told from day one that being white is bad, that America is bad, that being male is bad, particularly for men. you're 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 telling all these people that everything that they their parents hold dear is bad. Um, and some people will go along with it and will uh, allow themselves to be emasculated in that way. But are some people going to say, to hell with you? And then they don't believe anything. So, you know, if you've been, let's say, lied to or misled on climate or or the pandemic, instead of saying, hey, but we do have to do something about these issues, you say, well, it's all a lie. You know, I mean, yeah. today, in a I don't know if this is true in Australia. I know the Sydney Herald is kind of your New York Times, right? Sydney Morning Herald. Um, those papers, people just don't believe them. They, you know, and I always, t- I teach a class on propaganda. And one of the things I say, it's not that they purposely lie. They just remove anything that interferes with the narrative. So for instance, you can talk about electric cars, but you can't talk about the fact, well, if you have electric cars, you've got to generate a lot more electricity. And how do you do that when you shut down your nuclear p- plants and your gas plants? Where's the electricity going to come from? You think it's going to be cheap? You think it's going to be reliable? Um, but the problem is you can't raise the issues. And again, this comes from the education system. I find this with in, in theology as well as academia, um, also in, in, in increasingly even in the sciences. Everything is political. And I was talking to one you know, bright young uh, guy getting his PhD in engineering at Stanford. And the kid says to me, you know, yeah, I'm looking at this. And I'm saying, well, here are the advantages, here are the disadvantages and I don't know where we're going to get the electricity. And so he asks this professor and the professor says, you don't ask that question. You really? know? Yeah. I mean, now I'm not saying electric cars are good, bad and different. Maybe they're a good thing, but if you, it, but you have to understand that there are going to be problems with with the rare metals. There are going to be problems with disposal of the batteries. There's going to be problems uh, in in uh, getting the electricity. Um, you're going to lose some of the redundancy that you have now. Um, I mean, could you imagine if you had a a, a, a breakdown in your electricity supply, and 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 uh, and all the cars are electric, you you the society would come to an end. The one thing that worked during power outages is the car that has gasoline in it. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, I mean, I, again, I, I think that, that it's not that I necessarily disagree with some of the positions that Greens and progressives have. It's that we can't even debate them reasonably. Yeah. Even a guy like Steve Koonin, a leading physicist, is essentially sent into the, di- into the, into the, uh, into the digital gulag. Um, yep. You know because he you know the, the agenda and then there's another factor and it's important in Australia because your const, your population is so much concentrated in your capital cities is that it's also a elite that is overwhelmingly urban overwhelmingly affluent because you know to live decently in Sydney today you have to have a lot of money yeah particularly do. if you're under the, or or of course the, the the favorite way is is to inherit it. Yep. Um But, you know, the, the you know, so you have a class of people, you know, who will say, well, shouldn't everybody live in the city? Well, you know, I remember uh, speaking at a conference at Harvard and 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 uh, somebody some people from uh, the city of London said, well, we all live in the city. And they said, oh, by the way, do you all have country houses? And of course, they all did.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. They,
1: you know, Jamie Dimon wants everybody to come back into the office. Well, that's okay for him. He's got a luxury apartment in New York. He's got a 30-acre um, estate in Bedford up in Westchester County. And he, he, uh, and God knows how many other properties. And believe me, I don't think he drives to back and forth. He either takes a helicopter or has a chauffeur. For him, the office is great. For the poor schmuck who's got a commute from New Jersey for an hour and a half every day, it's not so great. And, and this is how COVID is accelerating this class divide.
0: This sort of almost, uh, you know, if they knew their history, they might like to go and have a, look, a good look at what unfolded in France. You know, uh, the disdainful <laughs> attitude of Marie Antoinette. Uh, let them eat cake. Uh, and it wasn't long before they so resented that that they took a head off. Um, this is uh, this whole problem of a lack of perspective and a lack of balance right. and a lack of understanding because... We refuse to believe that anybody who's gone before us had any wisdom or can tell us anything. The vast difference between all those well-educated people that you've been talking about, we've been talking about, uh, and, and them being acquainted with wisdom as well as with information.
1: Well, you know, a, a friend of mine who builds apartments in Silicon Valley um, told me, he said, the, the Silicon Valley elite is the least sensitive to the effects of what they're doing on society than any group of business people he's ever dealt with. How many of the, of the tech oligarchs have ever studied history? How many of them know anything about, the, you know, I, I, I did a, a podcast with a, um, a venture capitalist uh, a couple weeks ago and he starts saying, well, we ought to get rid of the constitution. It's old, it was built 200 something years ago. I said, We're, we exist because of the Const- constitution. Once you get rid of the Constitution, there's not going to be any constraints. Like, you know, there's a reason why we constructed our society the way we did, and we dis- and, and we um, we decentralized power and had checks and balances, we, which goes back to Mast- you know, Monte- Montesquieu, um, and and but it, but it was, it, it, you know, this this lack of respect for the past, this lack of respect for for a history this lack of respect for saying, okay, how did, how did we deal with environmental crises in the past? Um, what did we do? Have these crises b- happened before? The, you know, there's very little understanding. You, you can't even get them to say, well, you said 1970, this would happen, and it didn't. So I'm not saying it won't eventually happen, but why don't you get a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of humility here? That, you know, Al Gore doesn't have a machine to go into the future and tell us what the future looks like. He doesn't know. I'm, you know I'm, I I'm teaching a class next year on the sort of history of futurism and how often we've been like remarkably off target in terms of predicting what's going to happen. So let's have a little humility. And that humility comes in part by studying history and understanding that life does not have an arc to the better. There are. This is why mid, the medieval experience is so important. We come from the, for all its problems, the 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 um, uh, the beauties and 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 enormous accomplishments of the classical civilization, and then we go through in in Europe almost a thousand years of backwardness. Some points of light after a thousand, but history doesn't necessarily go go forward. You know, the 22nd century could be much more repressive and, and, and poorer than the 21st century. It, it can happen. It's happened before. It can happen again. Same thing in, if you study Chinese history, Indian history, you, you um, uh, Islamic history, all of which I've studied, you would find that uh, they've had periods of rises and falls. So you have to understand these things. But how do you deal with people who think that life can be... D- and and ideas can be reduced to algorithms, which um, uh, which cannot pick up these subtleties.
0: Well, the great thing is that I've discovered doing these conversations is a lot of young people are beginning to realize they're being sold a lot of duds along the way here, and they want more information. And and one of the things that I would say, you know, we talked a bit about the old definitions of left and right being wrong, but uh, you know, useless now. But one thing that always stands in my mind is one thing I do think conservatives have right is their profound belief that human nature doesn't change. And if people want to reject uh, their constitutional arrangements, we're the same in Australia. We have uh, a later constitution where we're able to draw on the best wisdom from around the world, including America. Uh, But, uh, you you know, go back and read the Federalist Papers, not that I've read them all, but go back and look at the deep thought, the deep understanding of human nature, the deep balancing of you know, people's rights uh, and responsibilities, the deep, div- thoughtful division of powers, the reason you have a collegiate system for electing you a president, the reason you have a Senate to look after the little people, the commitment to free speech, because free speech isn't for the majority, it's for the minority. And if you wash that out of the system, well, let, let me come to another question that I think arises out of your writings. This this um. You know, everybody knows better than Steve Coonan sort of approach. Now, he's a physicist and he might actually know something about climate change and he's not a denier, so he shouldn't be demonised right. by he's saying don't go too far. That's a, that's a reasonable synopsis, I think. But no, 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 we who feel um, actually understand better than those of you who know, so this is a crisis. Now, one of the things that you point to here is there's a real danger that this sort of policy positions that are now being forced on governments will actually result not just in the lower and middle classes not being able to get ahead, but in things like energy poverty uh, and, and a real cost burden that they're not being told about, although I suspect many of them are beginning to sense it. So that, uh, the climate change policies, uh, you know, everybody wants more renewables, and they do in this country too, and I understand why, uh, but they're not being exp- it's not being explained to them, the true economics behind it. And in reality, it may result in very considerable increases in costs that will be borne by people who can least afford those costs, not the people who are doing all the spruking.
1: Right. And of course, what we found here in California is who buys Teslas, who buys electric cars, who buys, who puts solar on their roofs? They're the wealthy people and they get all these benefits and they're, those benefits, particularly on on, on on solar, mean that the rates are higher for everyone else. I mean, we, we what we see over and over again is a pattern in which the middle and working classes get to pay for the obsessions of the wealthy who don't have to live with the consequences. I mean, if I was to come up with it, a, 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 a quick summary of where we're going, I think this is it. And this is very much in the medieval, um, tradition uh, you know if you take a look at um, you think about the aristocrats who you know could go into a village and rape the the daughters of of a uh, of, of of the of the peasants and then they can go and they can they they can get by indulgences from the church or you have the bishops who are who are preaching poverty and they're and the and the, the parish priests are poor and living with the poor you think the bishops live with the poor you think the popes lived with the poor no, they lived incredibly lavish lives and had mistresses, and you know. So this this idea of there being sort of one set of rules for one group of people and another set of rules for other, and we have the same models. If you read the history of the early Soviet Union, within the first two three years of the of the revolution, uh, which thank God my parents managed to 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 leave beforehand, but my grandparents. But but the but the but the thing that that's that's that happened is. Guess who's living in, in, in the estates of the noblemen, the Bolsheviks? Um, you know, so, so fundamentally, and that's why I think your point about human nature is, is important. And one thing I agree, the conservatives, but I would say traditional liberals understand you need a balance of power. You know, the, the great Justice Brandeis um, here in, in the U.S., he said, you know, let the states experiment. You know, like in your country, maybe what works in Western Australia doesn't work in New South Wales. Maybe what works in in the Northern Territories is something different. Let the local people decide, Okay, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. But that's not the mindset of the clerisy. And the clerisy and the oligarchs, they want national policies. They want top-down policies. And they don't want the hoi polloi to get in the way.
0: Interesting, um, just to go back to the human nature question for a while, it's really important to remember, and uh, not to sound uh, overly negative, I know I have a tendency to always look for the sort of the downside of what other people are trying to do, you really remember the upside. So if you go back to the clergy, you've got to remember that, of course, in earlier times, many, many, many uh, monks, whatever, right throughout Europe kept truth alive, they set up universities, they lived very simply indeed. But it's this, and and you could say the same of the people who've given us this incredible technology, which you and I are using right now, and avenues in social media. I hope for good, you know, promoting good argument. That's the theme of the series I do. You can't get good public policy without a good argument. If you shut the argument down, if you truncate it, if you distort it, you'll end up with bad policy. Uh, But it's it's a bit. I mean, and they might say, well, this is all good stuff, and it's good that wealthy people are buying Teslas. It'll be like. uh, the uh, history of the uh, internal combustion engine. They were, they were for the wealthy until Henry Ford came along and they became available for the masses. I guess the point is that the poor and the middle classes weren't subsidizing uh, the, the wealthy people to buy their early motor cars. There's a difference. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and, and also, the, you know, you have a movement to eliminate a, a great deal of independent businesses. You know, in COVID, at least I know in the United States, about thirty five percent of the all the small businesses in this country will probably not make it through the whole crisis um, what's going to happen with people who um uh, once once the transfer payments what what's you know end what's going to happen to them i mean the 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 problem is that we are setting up a system that i don't think to use the favorite green word is sustainable. you can't have a society where you know, 1% of the population controls, you know, 50, 60, 70% of the wealth. Um, you can't have a society that's democratic when four or five platforms control the flow of information and the culture. You know, now we have, you know, the, 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 the tech, you know, people buying up the studios, buying up the newspapers. Um, I mean, th- this, is, this is just terrifying um, development. And because governments are so afraid of these, these companies or are owned by them that nobody's, nobody's stopping them. Now, the good news, I'll give you some good news. I think there's a consciousness both on the left and the right that these tech companies are out of control and are and have to be curbed somehow. I think there is some, some pushback there. Um, I think there is some belief, for instance, here in the United States, that we have given too much of our economy over to China and we've allowed our industrial base to atrophy. Um, so there are, some, there are some good factors. And, and, and frankly, I, I, I think President Biden has followed President Trump on, the, on at least these issues. He'll never admit it, and, and probably Trump will never admit it. But the reality is the historical necessity of this country to, to begin to wean itself off China is um, I think widely recognized. So there are some good things going on. Um, there is some pushback. What we don't know is how the the politics will will shape over time.
0: This is a really interesting question. And of course, uh, you know, uh, America remains. There are no there are no global challenges that can be resolved without the full engagement of the Americans. Uh, and we're very conscious of that in Australia. Very conscious of it because. Uh, we've been feeling the ire of a very authoritarian regime to the north in recent times. Um, uh, and not least of all, I suspect, because we began, we were the first country to say that we didn't want Huawei uh, involved in the development of our 5G telecommunications network and then America followed, most of Europe's now followed, uh, and I, I suspect that uh, that was the, the, you know, the catalyst for a, bringing forward, if you like, of what I suspect was always going to be a much more assertive China. Uh, But the question remains, I think, um, we have to believe in ourselves. We have to believe in our culture. Our young people have been encouraged to believe that they're inheritors of a bad, uh, racist, uh, uh, cruel, oppressive culture that you'd have to say, is it worth defending? So how do you think that plays out? I mean, in the end, I suppose what I'm saying is maybe the world's future, if we're not to fall into a new dark ages, as you alluded to a little while ago, we have to actually believe that we have something valuable in our democratic traditions. We have to actually believe, here's one of the really interesting aspects of the current debate, it has to be painted as so bad you can never acknowledge progress. Uh, And as one who looks at Jimmy Crow and the whole question of um, the way blacks have been treated in America... I can see why there's been deep angst. But the reality is that as um, many black clear thinkers have said, there's been enormous progress since the 1960s. A number of, uh, of, of um, uh, black Americans who have moved into the middle classes and are now doing very well has improved dramatically. But there seems to be this sort of, oh, no, 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 it's all bad. You can never concede that a liberal democratic order is the way to get things done because the minute you concede that... You say, well, may, you're opening the suggestion that perhaps it shouldn't be overthrown. It can be somehow uh, made to work. The objective seems to be on the part of um, too many people now to rather carelessly say, we don't actually have a better alternative, but we just want to tear this down. It's just terrible. It's almost like the old communists of old who say, "You know, we just got to get rid of democratic capitalism without them really having a clear idea now of what the alternative might be. We've, we've got to believe in ourselves, though. that's my point. For all of that, and part of that's being humble enough to say we haven't got everything right, but if we don't believe in ourselves, we play right into the hands of those who say, well, you're right for overthrow.
1: Well, you know, I I was thinking, you know, I I mentioned to my daughters and also to my students, I would say, you know, I'm old enough to remember driving down to Virginia, my parents took me to Williamsburg, and seeing coloured-only hotels. And I asked my dad, I said, what's that? you know, I'm from New York, I, I, you know, I never saw anything like that. And, and when you think about it, you would, you know, in 50 years, um, African Americans have made enormous progress, they've had, had, um, and one of the really important things um, that's happened is that the country is increasingly multiracial um, and has accommodated all sorts of people. The, you know, the head of the Dallas chamber of commerce is, is an immigrant from Africa. The, you know, the uh, um, we have many Southern cities have African-American mayors. Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have African-Americans, you know, corporate executives at the highest
0: level. Well, you you, ha- you actually had a president.
1: We had, we elected a, a black president Twice. who, by the way, did fairly well among working class whites who are supposed to be racist. Um, so, you know, the, the bottom line is, yes, there are bad things and racism still exists. But if you look at the number of uh, police shootings, they're much lower than they had been in the past. Um, and when when police uh, um, uh, do something that uh, they misbehave there's a better chance that they're going to be punished and there are going to be changes in how policing is. So our system has built in it the ability to self-correct. That's the great advantage of our constitution and of, you know, the tradition that comes out of, you know, basically out of the UK, you know, you can change things they, they, they can be done gradually. You don't have to overthrow the government to change things. And what frightens me is if the progressive regime gets so institutionalized that people feel that their freedoms are being uh completely squashed, you may get a a um a reaction, at least among some, that is well, like what we saw on January sixth. Um, now, I blame President Trump for a lot of it, but but you know part of it is there is this sense in large parts of the population that they can't trust the establishment, they can't p- trust the professors, they can't tr- trust the liberal clerics, they, they can't trust the bureaucracy, and they're unfortunately, they're probably right that you can't trust them. Now, how you deal with that lack of trust is a different issue, but fundamentally, um, this lack of trust in our institutions is really scary yeah. um, because I, I think, you know... I mean, but you didn't used to think, well, if a president, if if, if a Democrat won the presidency, everything would change the next day. We you know we always felt, well, you know, there's there's the Senate and they've got to deal with with the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court. And on the left, they're talking about getting rid of the Senate, getting rid of the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court. I mean, making it so that the progressive program is permanent forever. and um, that is a recipe for social chaos um, that I don't. I don't want to see. I want to see many of the things that progressives want to see as well, but I. I think there are there. Are, you've got to get buy-in. You've got to get people to agree, um, to to these things. You've got to do it over time. You don't do it immediately.
0: I understand exactly what you're saying. It's, it comes back to what you said earlier. We need a little humility on the part of some of these people to recognize the worth and dignity of others and their right to have a say. And a, 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 you know, a, a realistic enough assessment of a reality that if you don't allow people to ask questions, to voice their concerns, they won't own the solutions you push on them. And again, right. history is a good guide as to what happens if you keep patronizing others.
1: Right, and and, and, and you can't turn everything into a war. A war is a war. And yes, during World War II, I'm sure in Australia as well as in the United States, and even more so the UK, people voluntarily gave up their freedoms because there was a cause. You can't expect people, whether it's COVID or or, or climate or racism, to essentially sign away all their basic rights all the time. I mean, a a crisis is a crisis, and um and you you need to be very judicious about how you apply it but now and we're we're going to see this i I'm completely convinced that when the pandemic comes to an end there will be an announcement we now have a climate crisis and we're going to we're going to deal with it with executive orders because there's no way the people are going to vote to get rid of their cars when there's no way they're going to change their diets there's no way they're going to want to move uh, into little apartments in the city and and ride the choo-choo trains everywhere. They're just not going to want to do it, so they're never going to get that through the legislature. So they'll 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 do it by decree.
0: Well, that's an interesting line uh, to segue into, trying to summarize what what you've had to say that's uh, so valued. And you mentioned you teach uh, a class uh, uh, as a futurologist. Um, a question around. If you take that approach with the Americans, we've seen in COVID, it's been interesting, Australians have been relatively willing to obey dictates from the government in lockdowns and so forth. And I think the patience is wearing very thin now, but they have been. America is much more individualistic, much more competitive. People don't like being told what to do. Can you see, you know, what's your best guess on how this might unfold? Because I I find it hard to believe the Americans will allow themselves by dictate to be deprived of all of these things that they've taken, they see as their birthright. I mean, you stop and think about, very extraordinary for us to understand the intensity of it all, but their commitment to gun laws. And what happens if, uh, if governments start to try to force people out of their private cars and you know impose measures on them that push their electricity prices through the roof? We know that Americans have said that they're not prepared to pay very much at an individual level at all to address climate change. Where does this end? How do you see it unfolding, given that Americans can be stirred up, they really can, uh, you know, they will engage in cultural battles much more perhaps than most other Westerners?
1: Well, I, I, what I'm hoping is that we will, as we've done in the past, find a way to address the issues in front of us um, in a way that that also respects the rights of individuals and doesn't get away of, of um Upward mobility. Um, we, we've done it before. You know, we have to remember that after World War II, whether um, under, in Australia, the UK, um, Japan, the US, there was, we we really moved towards a more democratic society. We made the changes we needed to make. People were beginning to be able to buy houses in, in the US in the 60s. We addressed the, the great gaping hole, which was our treatment of, of um, particularly of African-Americans. We've been able to do it in the past, It's, but we've got to, uh, I think your point is right on target. We have to have debate, we have to have compromise. I mean, my great hope with President Biden is as a life, you know, as a long-term Senator, he would um, try to get those kinds of, uh, of compromises through. The problem is A, his own party doesn't want that or the lot of his own party. And the Republicans don't seem to want it either. I mean, we've got extremes on both sides that, that consider any form of compromise as a surrender. You can't have a democratic society where extremes rule. And by the way, the vast majority of Americans are neither on the right or the left. Most of them are somewhere in the middle. Some tilt a little left, some tilt a little right. I am sure that's the situation in Australia and the UK as well.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: But the, the problem is that great group towards the center has no voice. It's being pushed out of the public debate, it's being pushed out of the entertainment industry, it's being pushed out of most newspapers. You know, I used to uh, work for, I've, I've been a columnist at the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the LA Times. And the openness of those publications, I still do some for the LA Times but the openness of those publications to any kind of unconventional non-party line views has declined dramatically. Yes. I, My poor wife has to hear me when I look at the New York Times and I said, where the hell was the editor? How could you allow somebody to write something that never dealt with the other side? Scientists say, well, scientists say all sorts of things. They, they're they not, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, they're not you know, members of the SS, you know, they, 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 they dissent, they argue, or they certainly should. And, um, and until we, we respect those traditions, I think we're going to head towards a, a feudalism because feudalism has all the controls and the dictatorial ideologies um, that we're seeing today. They're just, they're just not so oriented towards religion, they're more oriented elsewhere.
0: Well, Professor Joel Kotkin, author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Uh, You've been very generous with your time. There's a lot of food for thought there, a lot of challenge, and you do it in a very civilised and respectful way, which is the mark, I think, of uh, someone committed to quality debate. We We will not find our way out of the current maze of difficult problems, if we will not respect one another. So I I can only thank you very much indeed for your time uh, and uh, for the lifetime of experience that you've brought to this moment. Uh, That's the thing, isn't it? Uh, You you don't become an instant expert on anything. Too many people think that they can become an instant expert and all too often based on their feelings rather than their thinking and their knowledge.
1: Well, you know what? History matters, if I was to summarize uh, uh, my ideas more than anything. History matters. Understanding history is critical to making good policy and creating a good
0: society. And to keeping ahead.
1: head. Yep. <laughs> That's true.
0: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
1: You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au